Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 93. Colonel Dion Ferreira was putting the final touches together for the next phase of Operation Modular, and that was in late October 1987. The South Africans had reorganized themselves into three combat groups for the upcoming push against FAPLA that was southeast of Quito, Guanabali. Combat Group Alpha was initially led by Kuber Smith of 61 Mech, but he was about to be rotated out to be replaced by Commandant Mike Muller, and this force was basically 61 Mech minus a mechanized infantry group. Combat Group Bravo, led by Robbie Hartsleaf, was two motorized infantry companies from 3-2 Battalion and 101 Battalion each, as well as 3-2 Battalion's anti-tank squadron, with a mechanized infantry company seconded from 61 Mech. Combat Group Charlie was headed up by Leon Marais and comprised of four Sai infantry, a tank squadron of Ulifants, plus a motorized company from 3-2 Battalion. Alongside these was 2-0 Artillery Regiment under Colonel Jean Lasbach. Sierra Battery retained their G5 guns and turned their 120mm mortars over to Romeo Battery. So this regiment had two G5 batteries, one Valkyrie MRL battery, along with a 120mm mortar battery and a troop of G6s. That meant there were 3,000 South Africans in this brigade. No reinforcements. The artillery was going to be based southeast of the Mianai River, which itself is southeast of Quetaquanabali, covered by a combat group Bravo. Quito Quanavali was now in range, along with its crucial airstrip. But the Angolans had withdrawn their MiGs and attack helicopters from the town, aware that the SADF long-range G5s and G6s could strike their expensive machines. The big guns began pounding the town on the 20th of October, and by the 23rd the Russians began reporting what they called the disgusting howl and whistle of the G5s. The bombardments were getting closer. On the 24th of October, Papa's 59th Brigade was facing the South Africans along the Mianai River. Russian advisors and part of the 21st Brigade were ordered to head off in a column to the 59th position. At 1400 hours 20, this column of Angolans and Russians was hit by three two battalion small arms fire and artillery in an attack that lasted 20 minutes. The Fapla column experienced problems. One of the water carriers hit a log and turned over, crashing a soldier. By 1500 hours 40, the SADF artillery opened fire once more with 120mm mortars. One shell exploded a few metres away from the armoured troop carriers, shrapnel killing one soldier. Several others were wounded. Igor Zhidokin, the translator whose diary I've used recently, paints quite a picture of this moment. Around 1700, I went to the communications platoon of our brigade to transmit information to Quito via the Rakal radio station. As he arrived there, Unita troops opened fire on this mobile station, hitting it with machine gun rounds, while mortars exploded nearby. Several bullets whizzed past, and I only just succeeded in jumping off the armoured troop carrier and creeping under it, next to several members of the Angolan Signal Corps who were already there. Even the brigade commander's dog was hiding there and whined timidly at every shell. Eventually, the SADF bombardment ceased, and Zhidakin headed back to the Russian advisor troop carrier, preferring to broadcast his update using his R-123 radio. But he had just managed to climb aboard the carrier when the mortar and G-5 shells began again. Another bombardment was reported at 2200 hours. The SADF was busy that night. There were some new techniques being deployed by the South Africans. The Rekis and UNITA were passing on information about all these men moving around, 
and they realized that it took a G5 shell up to 90 seconds to travel 30 kilometers. So the spotter watching the Angolans would alert the artillery when the vehicles traveling towards them were about 90 seconds from a bridge they'd been targeting, timing to hit as the armored car crossed. We caused a lot of problems that night, thanks to Unita Reki and the radio man, Lashbag told journalist Fred Bridgeland later. Problems were mounting for the Angolans. On the 25th of October, the reinforcement column resumed their march towards 59th Brigade under constant bombardment from mortars and direct attacks on the ground by UNITA. By 3pm that afternoon, they were still a few kilometres away from the 59th position, although they had made contact with the first tactical group and managed to refuel their vehicles. At 1700 hours, the South Africans began the bombardment again. Now the Russians had been constantly hit for three days in a row and beginning to suffer the effects mentally. Shadakhan in particular was attuned to what the SADF was up to. The South Africans worked out a new tactic, he wrote in his diary for that day. First, they launch an artillery bombardment and all the Angolans run for cover, including the anti-aircraft gunners. And then, unexpectedly, their planes would appear, execute the strike, and then fly off faster than the anti-aircraft gunners could come out of their hiding places. These mirages and other SA Air Force planes were in sync with the artillery, which was bad news for 59th Brigade and the advancing reinforcements. It got worse for Zhidakin and his colleagues as they sat down to eat dinner when they heard what he called the mumbling of the Valkyrie multiple rocket launches from a distance. These rockets were packed with anti-personnel ball bearings and the Angolans were petrified of this weapon for good reason. They possessed massive destructive power, said Zhidakin. In a fraction of a second, everyone hit the ground. No one was left at their dinner table. Moments later, the incoming rockets hit the trees. Then a few minutes later, the SADF hit the reinforcements with 120mm mortars. Eventually, the night quietened down. Probably they simply decided to wish us bon appetit, the rascals, wrote Zhidokin. What was going on was that the South Africans were now advancing in a planned and deliberate manner, unlike the first phase of Operation Modulo. Colonel Ferreira based himself at the tactical HQ near Mavinga, leaving Roland de Vries back in Rundu to draw up the main plan for the assault on Quito Guanavali. After a day or so, de Vries and Colonel Fred Ulschich and Jean Larsberg flew to Mavinga to discuss this plan with UNITA's Jonas Avimbi. By now, FAPLA's forces were arraigned in an arc mainly to the southeast of Quito Guanavali. 16 Brigade was at the source of the Chambinga River, the furthest north of these brigades, while 66 Brigade was close to the main road bridge over the river. This was one of the key points that the SAF was had been hitting. It was the only route FAPLA brigades further south could use to escape. 59 Brigade was just below the 16 Brigade, while to their west, at the confluence of the Quito and Mianne rivers, an infantry battalion of the 66 Brigade was waiting. Nearby was an infantry battalion of the 25th Brigade at the source of the Mianne River. Further towards the Quito River was 21 Brigade, based behind the 25th Brigade, and 21 was arraigned along the Mianne as well. Because of the SADF delay in following up their victory at the Lomba River in October, these Angolan brigades were back to full strength. At the same time, Roland de Vries's plan conformed to a mechanized assault, using the maximum power at a point to destroy the enemy brigade by brigade. The idea was to keep the battlefield fluid, where superior mobility was the important factor. That would keep Fapla on the hop and ensure that the SADF maintained the initiative. De Vries told me that he used an existing template, that of the 1942 Battle of Gazala during World War II, 
He copied the German plan, basically using Erwin Rommel's blueprint. The German general defeated the British 8th Army, then occupied Tobruk, which just by the way was where my great-uncle was captured, along with around 40,000 South Africans. Rommel used a frontal attack on the British and the South African lines, but it was a ruse. The main part of his armoured force outflanked the 8th Army and then threatened their rear. The 8th Army retreated in disarray, leaving behind most of their tanks which were destroyed. Exploiting the lines of least resistance and least expectation, a classic surprise move. The Angolans had grouped 16 Brigade in the north, where they expected the SADF to launch an attack. After all, virtually every single one of their previous operations had seen the South Africans outflank the brigades or town, heading past either to the east or the west, then swinging around to assault the defences from the north. That was because Fapla's defences normally were set up to face south. But over the last few years, the Angolans had learnt their lesson. They now expected an attack from the north, thus the placement of 16 Brigade east-northeast of Quito Quanavali on the Chambinga River. Further west, on the road to Menong, Vapla was secure in the knowledge that their reconnaissance flights would pick up any SADF attempt at cutting off the Manong Quito Quanavali road long before any battle began. Combat Group Alpha, or 61 Mech minus a mechanized infantry company, would launch the first attack on 59 Brigade far to the south, but it was a ruse while Forsyth of Combat Group Charlie was designated as the main assault force in the north. They would outflank the Angolans' left flank north of the 16th Brigade and attack Quito Quanavali from there and then the rear. Just to keep reinforcements away, Combat Group Bravo, comprised of 3-2 and 101 battalions, would assault 59 and 21 Brigade far to the south. As usual, it wasn't as simple as that. Waiting for orders was the enemy tank tactical group north of Chambinga, as well as 66 Brigades skulking almost 20 kilometers from them at a bridge over the Chambinga River as well. Part of the plan was to force 16 Brigade out of this area, then Alpha and Charlie groups would head straight west and seize the Chambinga Bridge between that river and the Hube River. This would leave 59 and 21 Brigades stranded east of Quito, then they would be encircled and destroyed. Meanwhile, officers of these two brigades had their own plans, of course, a counter-attack on the South Africans, particularly targeting the SADF artillery positions. Unlike previous operations, both armies knew by now where the other was. Pretoria, however, was banking on their mobility and quick action to overcome a larger, more powerful force. Vapla was banking on their superior air power and weight of numbers. The Russians and 59 Brigade weren't static. They began to push forward towards the South Africans on the 26th of October, but were caught by an extremely accurate artillery bombardment, which killed four and wounded 22. It was only that night that 59th Brigade finally stopped and dug in expectantly. The day of the 27th of October dawned with the unceasing din of artillery fire. The SADF was shelling 59th Brigade virtually non-stop. Experiencing the full brunt of the bombardments, the Russians began composing songs after eating goat stew with potatoes for supper that night. We found it so tasty we licked the whole pot, said Zhidokin. By the 28th, the bombardment had intensified. Again on the 29th, this time, the SADF artillery caused mayhem. Last night, the enemy hit the 59th Brigade with 148 shells, said Zhidokin. He reported that an officer, a sergeant and four soldiers had died. Dozens of others were missing. It was going to get a lot worse and quickly. At 6 a.m. on the 29th, the Russians were sitting close to their armoured vehicles, having breakfast, when they heard the SADF artillery firing once more. 
Through habit, we cocked our ears to hear where the shot was flying. The air defense expert called Slava shouted, Get down! Just as a massive explosion ripped through the parked vehicles, blowing men over. One twenty millimeter shells were landing amongst the Angolans and the Russians. Then reports began filtering in that the SAGF was using chemical weapons. The brigade commander was coughing blood, said Zhidakin. The wind was blowing nearby, and everyone was complaining of violent headaches and nausea. No one had gas masks. The SAGF claims it never used chemical weapons. These Russians disagree, saying their advisers were sick from that day's bombing. The truth? Who knows? On the 30th of October, these barrages continued, with Fapla desperately trying to respond. Our brigade's artillery reconnaissance simply can't locate this battery, said Zhidakin. The scouts have constant problems. Their radio signals were being jammed by the SEDF. A reluctance to do anything is evident, said a disgusted Zhidakin. And of course, fear of the South Africans, particularly after they used poison gas. Most of the troops apparently refused to move then unless they were sent gas masks, but they were ignored. Perhaps there was no gas, but these soldiers are willing to swear that there was some kind of gas attack over these two days. During the Truth Commission process in the early 1990s, however, it emerged that the apartheid government had been developing chemical weapons codenamed Project Coast. Project manager Neil Knubel admitted that chemical weapons were developed but said these only came into production in 1988. We know that between 1987 and 1994, arms corps subsidiary Swartle products loaded CR powder into just under 12,000 hand grenades and rifle grenades, 81mm mortar bombs, and in over 1,300 G5 155mm shells. CR powder is a non-lethal chemical used in riot control products. So where the chemicals originated, they blew into the faces of the Russians and others alongside 59 Brigade in late October 1987 needs further investigation. It was now 30th of October, and the continuous SADF shelling and bombing suddenly stopped. What can this mean? The Russians were saying to each other. Is the enemy devoted to stock-taking or room-cleaning on the last day of the month? Shadarkin wrote in his diary that, This quiet is not a good sign. I recall a film about the Great Patriotic War. There one of our soldiers tosses and turns on a plank bed in a dugout and finally says miserably, If they would only shoot, otherwise we can't sleep at all. Clearly the Russians were cracking jokes, but the tension was palpable on both sides. Everyone had got used to falling asleep with the sound of shells falling. The silence that pervaded was more frightening, more psychologically deafening. November the 1st, 1987 dawned, it was a bright day, and little did the Angolans know it was D-Day minus 8. The SADF planned to launch their major offensive on the 9th, but before then, there was more softening up and reconnaissance planned. Fapla and the SADF exchanged bombardments that day, the BM-21 rockets shrieking eastwards, the G-5s west. During one of these exchanges, a G-5 high-explosive shell scored a direct hit on the Russian command post, alongside 59 Brigade. When the dust cleared, Fapla troops lay dead, but none of the Russians had been hit. As the group leader said later, At that moment, we were reborn. He was ironic because the 1st of November was his birthday. He was 40. It was a miracle. That shell landed 30 meters away. The saplings and branches of the trees had been blown off, 
and most of the Russian advisers on the scene from now on had hearing loss of some sort. On the 3rd of November, SA Air Force raids began at 0500. Seven planes swooped in, hitting the brigade but causing little damage. Just after 1pm that afternoon, 59 brigade reconnaissance units stumbled on a forward UNITA base, managing to kill a number of the rebels, capturing their radios and some small arms. The SADF bombarded the 59th again overnight and through the next day, the 4th of November. The commander of the brigade's 3rd Battalion was seriously wounded, while about a dozen others were killed, including the officer of the political special department. This was the man who monitored the fighting on behalf of the MPLA government, and now he himself was dead. On the 7th of November, the Angolans began to pick up movement around the source of the Lomba River to the south below the 59th Brigade, close to the Miane and Kolui rivers. The SADF's combat group Alpha was moving into position for their feint. Fapla monitored this movement. During the day, there were two bombardments of Angolan 59th Brigade 1st Battalion, which was occupying the huts, and the Angolans began to believe what the SADF wanted them to, that any attack was likely to be directed at the 59th in the region of the Miane River, perhaps closer to Quito Quanavali, not to the north. By now, the SADF artillery fire was almost exclusively anti-personnel rounds instead of high explosive. These exploded in the air, spraying shrapnel for 300 meters about. A column then drove up to the 59th from the 25th Brigade, closer to the Quito River, bringing fresh food, which was welcomed by the Angolans. But the SADF spotted the vehicles and peppered them with shells. Two men were killed, seven wounded. As the bombardments continued, Colonel Ferreira constructed a large sand model of 16 brigades positioned on the Chambinga River, and the final preparations were made. On the evening of the 8th of November, the SADF increased the pressure still further as a few units of the 59th Brigade began moving forward to try and engage the South Africans in a more mobile way. All night we heard the rumble of engines and nearby explosions, wrote Jadokin in his diary. This was the diversionary attack by Combat Group Alpha, which started at 0100 hours on the morning of the 9th. It was at dawn that day that the Russians joined up with fellow Soviet advisors who were based at 59 Brigade HQ and who said, no problem, everything was under control, nothing to worry about. Of course, there was a great deal to worry about. That's because as they spoke to the north, the SADF launched their attack on the 16th Brigade around the Chambinga River starting at 0500. Artillery and rockets had caught the unsuspecting troops in the open. At 0630, the mirages swooped in, hitting the positions with pre-frag bombs. Simultaneously to the south, Alpha's infantry and armoured vehicles rolled directly at 59th Brigade and their Russian advisors, purposefully gunning their engines and firing indiscriminately as they went, making as much noise as possible so the Angolans fixated on the southern approach. The SEDF had nudged a hornet's nest, and from the bush, T-55 tanks began to roll forward to engage this threat, and ready for action nearby were the South Africans' Ulifant tanks. What happened next is for next episode. A quick note of thanks to Ant, Rob and Mike. Thank you so much for the significant donations in the last month that's helped me fund the web and podcast fees for the series. I'm in your debt, guys. Thank you so much. And also a big thank you to other folks who've helped me in the last year with your donations to ensure that we keep the series up on the various podcasting platforms. If you'd like to help, there's a PayPal donate button on the website abwarpodcast.com. And for those of you interested in SADF and SANDF merchandise and others, head over to wardogactual.co.uk 
or check out Nick's designs at War Dog Actual on Instagram. That's wardogactual.co.uk. Thanks for your continuous support, Nick. We'll meet up one of these days, I'm sure. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps raise the visibility of the series. If you want to contact me, there's an email form on the website abwarpodcast.com or you can direct message me on Twitter at Deslathan. Until next, goodbye. Thank you.